Okay, welcome everybody. Uh, continuation here of our study of Mark. Just a brief recap. Recall last week we spent our, all of our time on a rather longer story about Jesus healing a man with a demon. But if you remember, it was more than that. It wasn't just one demon, but a legion of demons. Call it Jesus gave these uh, demons permission to enter the pigs. There were thousands of them we saw. The pigs rushed into the sea and drowned. Clearly there was a type of exorcism that took place there. Recall the people of the area. Jesus was in a Gentile area. Um, they Then when they came down and kind of got the whole story of what happened, I call them these rubberneckers that were there. Um, what happened? They got afraid and they asked Jesus to, to leave. However, the man that was healed of the demon, he stayed in the land as a witness. And... Uh, as we see then the next time that Jesus comes back in this era, we're going to see this in Mark 7, um, to feed uh, the 4,000 that uh, he's actually welcomed. So kind of read into that what happens. He has a witness there, but the next time he comes, he's somewhat welcomed. So this first stop in this area, this Gentile area, can be seen as a very important one for our Lord. Clearly he won a witness for himself in this predominantly Gentile area. And again, the next time he comes back, he's, he's welcome. So, Okay, so that uh, was what we did last week. Today, now, we're going to get through. This is kind of a longer story. There's actually two stories within one. It's Jesus heals a woman and then also heals Jairus' daughter. So we'll jump into that today. And if we can get through that, then we'll move on to chapter 6 about Jesus being rejected in his own hometown of Nazareth. Okay, so before we do that, why don't we begin with an invocation and then the Lord's Prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Okay, so if you have your Bibles with you, we can turn to Mark chapter 5 here. That's page 1664, if you have your Lutheran study Bible with you. And we're at, uh, again, Mark chapter 5, uh, verse 21, is where we'll start here. And I think it's long, but I want to read the whole thing just to put everything in context, see the whole big picture, and then we'll come back and go through it if that's okay with you all. All right. So then why don't we begin here with verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him, and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. Verse 25. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for twelve years, and who had suffered much under many physicians, 
and had spent all that she had had. It was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, And Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumai, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Okay, so as we kind of see here, there's a story right within a story. There's like a page, there's a break in through this. So what we'll do, we're just going to go through it chronologically and talk about it uh, verse by verse here. So kind of two stories in one, but you see they are connected. <clears throat> okay, so verse 21 here, we'll start at the beginning, go line by line. And again, if you have any questions, just interrupt me. So verse 21, And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. So recall, oh yes, go ahead. had the demon after he uh, cast out that demon he said go home to your friends and tell them how much the lord has done for you and how so he he didn't say don't say it but you yeah. you mentioned that was because he was on the other side of the lake right right yeah and in fact at the end i promise you i'm going to get to that i have a whole thing on that but i i that's a great pickup because at the end so re- remember and let's keep this in mind and i'm going to address it when we get to the end so remember he, he tells this man uh, to go speak to go tell everybody yeah. right but then again, once again, now that he's back in, in, in a Jewish area, he tells them not. But I will address that, I promise, at the end. But that's a great pickup, yeah. Huge, huge difference. The secrecy narrative, secrecy narrative, and I'll go through that. 
But good pickup for sure. Okay, so verse 21 here, you see Jesus crosses again the boat to the other side. So recall before, he was in Gentile country. Now he's coming back from the sea. He's going from uh, the east to the west. So he is now in the Israel area, the Jewish region again here when he comes. Um, and again, this will, and as you, you said there, Chris, this will become apparent uh, for sure that he's back in this Jewish area because at the end, uh, he, to- he gives this silence, and again, I'll talk about that, in contrast to what he did in the Gentile territory. So good pickup on that. Okay, so here he is. Jesus is back now. Uh, he's beside the sea, Sea of Galilee, uh, in verse 22. Then at some point, then come one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet. So isn't this interesting here? We've got Jairus, and they specify, specify, Mark does, who he is. And this is a a, a big point. He's a ruler of one of the synagogues. And this is kind of shocking at this point to see um, that this this ruler of the synagogue now is coming to Jesus asking for help. Remember up to this point, remember what the rulers of the synagogues, the scribes and the Pharisees have been doing is really really rejecting him. Okay, But we have Jairus here. Um, who's kind of an anomaly from what see. And uh, I think this is great. I'm going to quote this from Dr. Veltz in his book. Um, I want to put it, just read exactly what he says, because I think it's very interesting. So Dr. Veltz says this, With the coming of Jarius, two things should be noticed here. One, not all Jewish authorities are hostile to Jesus. Okay, I think that's self-apparent. Two, the so-called, quote, minor characters in Mark, such as this man Jarius and the woman with the issue of blood, are, can, see, can still see seen even though Jewish. They are true disciples with insight and faith, both qualities exhibited in the face of difficulty and opposition. Okay, so we do have a ruler of a synagogue coming to Jesus. Um, another thing, uh, Jarius is one of three parents who would effectively plead for their children. We see this here. We'll see it with the Syrophoenician woman in chapter 7. And then another, uh, the man with a demon-possessed boy, we'll see in chapter Mark. So there's one of three parents we'll see doing similar things. So interesting to note here again, Jarius, rulers of one of the synagogues. So we would think up to this time that he would be opposed to Jesus, but he's not. And in fact... So much so, we see in verse 22 here, what does he do when he gets to Jesus? He fell at Jesus' feet. So what does this mean? Uh, Jesus is really, or this Jairus is prostrating himself at Jesus' feet. I think you can see that it's, it's an immediate acknowledgement of his own inferiority. It's a major admission now by a man with really uh, a lot of authority within this uh, society. So falling at Jesus' feet here, showing his acknowledgement of who Jesus was. And again, Jesus, um, what this meant, ruler of the synagogue, was he was an elder who really managed all the affairs of the synagogue. So it's, it's a very high position within that Jewish society there, one of the rulers of the synagogue. So he clearly is a man of significant prominence here. This is who this Jairus is. Okay? So verse 23 then. <clears throat> so Jairus them implored Jesus earnestly saying, this is what he says, this is the plead, his plea, my little daughter 
is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be well, she may be made well and live. All right, this is going to be a very uh, big theme within this reading that we're doing, and I'm going to talk about it a lot, and I'm going to give you kind of the final conclusion at the end. But it is this idea of so that she may be well and live. What's interesting in the English when we're bringing over, it says that she may be well or she may be healed. Really, the Greek word is this word, it's called sozo. And the proper translation out of it is saved. Okay? So it's saying in order that she may be saved and live. That should, is really the better English translation of it. It's save. Okay? And again, this save here in this context, this save is um, clearly it's being saved through the intervention of Jesus. Now we're going to see this also with the woman, and then we're going to see this language come up at the end, and I'm going to expound on it a little bit further. But in any event, what uh, Dr. Linsky in his commentary says this, that this verb, okay, sozo, saved, always combines the idea of rescue and the idea being placed permanently into the condition of safety. That's one aspect of it. Okay? But sozo clearly denotes more than just being healed in the Greek. And I'll talk more about this as we get through it. Okay? So um, this Jairus here, his daughter, yes, I'm coming to you. Will you lay your hands on her? Uh, and so that she may be saved and lived. Um, Luke actually uh, adds one little bit more detail, says that, that this was Jairus' only daughter. Mark doesn't provide that. Now, it's interesting, then Jairus also says, lay your hands on her. Um, and, you know, we've seen this um, before in um, Mark here, in Mark one thirty. If you guys will recall, we went over, it was Simon Peter's mother-in-law. Remember, she lay ill with the fever. Uh, Jesus came, and then Jesus came and took her by the hand, lifted her up, and the fever left. So there are times, clearly, where Jesus had done healings, where he laid his hand or touched the person. But then we've seen a lot more, and we'll see other instances, where Jesus doesn't. It's just the word. Recall the paralytic man we talked about? Jesus told him, arise. Uh, There was no touching. So... We don't know why Jairus asked this. Maybe he had seen it before or heard of it, but he does ask Jesus to lay his hands on her. But of course, we know that Jesus doesn't always have to touch someone to heal them. Okay, verse 24, And when he went with him, and he went with him, so Jairus went with Jesus, and then what happens? And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. It's kind of an interesting translation, thronged about him. The Greek translation can be uh, kind of begin to rub against him. You know, just think of it as in a crowd, a big crowd. People were inadvertently touching him and rubbing up against him. That's what happened. And remember, this is kind of the very same thing that Jesus had had counted earlier. In, in Mark 3, 9, it's, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. So, um, again, Jesus' popularity, remember the news is spreading fast. He is having crowds now all around him. Um, but yet, for the sake of the people in his ministry, 
He does not, does not stay separate from them. He is with the crowds. We see this. He's always with the crowds at this point. Okay. Now, that set up the story of Jairus and the healing of Jairus' daughter. Now we have an interesting kind of break. Another story is inserted here, okay? But it's all part of the same narrative, but it's very interesting. There's this now kind of this abruption here to Jairus' story, and it's going to shift gears, Mark is, on something else that happens right immediately here when all this is going on here. So it is a translation, a transition, but it's still part of a continuing here. Okay, so we'd see this then in verse 25. And there was a woman uh, who had a discharge of, charge of blood for 12 years. Now, uh, thinking about this, this woman with this bloody discharge is, is considered unclean and would have been ostracized. Okay, um, I if you're interested in reading about kind of what's going on here in Leviticus, it's Leviticus 15, 25 through, 30, 25 through 33. It'd be on page 187 of your Lutheran Study Bible. Uh, it's interesting how the author, the uh, editors have, have labeled this section, Leviticus 15, it's laws about bodily discharges. And again, I'm not going to read through it, but you can kind of see what's being laid out about here and how these uh, make people unclean and what they're supposed to do. So it's really the entire chapter of 15. And then it's verse 25 pretty much is kind of the similar situation that, that, that this woman is having. But clearly under Levitical law, this woman here is unclean. Okay. And remember, unclean people. There's a lot of requirements they could do. Couldn't go into the synagogue. You know, they're they're ostracized. So we can think about this woman as being ostracized because she's unclean. But look, note that Jesus, we'll see here, has no problem with her Levitical or uh, uncleanliness. Okay. And we've seen that before with Jesus before. Remember when he touched the leper? Remember we talked about the leper? The lepers were unclean, not allowed in the city, not allowed in the... But Jesus uh, has no problem even touching the leper. So um, so his statement then, as we're going to see, when, when she touches him, is it doesn't have to do anything about her uncleanliness under Levitical law. I want to make that clear off the... Um, off the bat here, because Jesus is not concerned with this type of cleanliness or uncleanliness of this external nature. He's more concerned about the internal uh, cleanliness of sin. All right. Verse 26 here. Any questions or anything up to this point? Where we are? Okay. So anyways, verse 26. Um, and this woman who had suffered much under many physicians... And had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. This Mark's given us a little uh, history of this woman. Apparently, uh, she'd been seen many physicians, so she's consulted doctors in the area. And then has spent all that she had, presumably um, all of her wealth. Um, I think we can see here that, um, you know, because of this wealth and seeing doctors, we can maybe presume that 
she was kind of an elite because only the elite at that time would have the recourse to, to spend money on doctors. So this could suggest that she actually was someone of, a, of an elite status. She certainly had money, who she was, but clearly she was ostracized because of this. Uh, verse 27, then, she had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garments. All right. Having heard about Jesus, I think that's no surprise, right? We know his popularity. The news travels fast. He's very popular. The crowds. But she's only, it says she's only heard about Jesus. Again, may indicate that she has been ostracized and had not been part of any crowds to see Jesus in his prior uh, uh, miracles, um, but had heard the reports. Um, and then what does she do then? This is very interesting. So she comes up in the crowd to Jesus, and then she touched, touched his garment. Now, researching this, I, kind of, I found out this, that this actually would have been considered highly inappropriate in this Middle Eastern context, okay? Touching, just touching random people, okay? So that's kind of the first thing. So it's a highly, highly inappropriate what she does, number one. But th- I think this is, this is interesting, too, about touching here. What is it about the, the garment? So I, I found this, like all Jews during, during this time, the men wore something called a shemla, which it was this really large square cloth, I guess, used as an outer robe. But then it had tassels at the four corners. And this is actually a requirement of Deuteronomy 22.12. And Deuteronomy 22.12 says this, You shall make yourselves tassels on the four corners of the garment with which you cover yourself. So these tassels, okay? So um, then you, uh, the tassels would, be, would come, be come down, and there would be four of them, two and two. But then what they would do was take two of the tassels and throw them over their back. So you'd have two in the front and two in the back. So you have this four here. So Matthew, actually, his version of this account adds a little bit more detail to it. It says uh, that, that, that the woman came and touched, quote, the fringe of his garment, then when you look at, look at it, can the commentators say that it was this tassel that she touched? But in any event, she touched up a piece of Jesus' clothing clearly here. Okay. Then in verse 28 here, For she said, If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And of course we see here is this, the woman's plan does in fact correspond to reality. Um, interesting about uh, touching of garments. I started thinking about this a bit and saw, you know, we'll see this again in Mark where someone touches G- Jesus. But then um, in Acts, this is very interesting, Acts 19, uh, verse 12, talking about Paul in Acts. Um, it's written, verse 11, And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, verse 12, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. I had forgot about that. Um, so anyway, it's, uh, you know, very interesting here, touching Jesus, uh, Paul, same thing, uh, touching his clothes. But of course we know that not, it's not just the touching. So, 
Um, another thing, I said I'd mention this again. And what does she self say? She said, for I said, if I touch his garments, I will be made well. Again, this is that same Greek verb, sozo. I said it's translated sometimes in the English is made well or healed. But again, it's to be saved. Um, as I said in 523, because uh, Jairus said the same thing. And now this woman is saying the same thing. I will be saved. Okay, I'll comment more on it here as we get a little bit further on what this actually means. But in any event, uh, the reason that she touched Jesus is because she she had faith in Jesus that even only by touching his robes that she would be healed and saved. So there is a faith element here to what's going on. All right, and then what happens here in verse 29? And immediately... The flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Um, I think this is a good fact that Mark puts in here. Surely this shows, it indicates there's evidence that a miracle did in fact happen. This wasn't just a mere psychological change. There was a physical healing because it says the blood stopped. Okay, So there was a healing that takes place, clearly. And again, the woman's faith here is absolutely justified. What she sought by touching did, in fact, happen. Okay, so you would think into the story, right? No, it's not. um, Or again, I wanted to point out before I say that is that this this happened immediately. So this happened as soon as she touched immediately. This immediately happens with her. But think about Jarius, where Jarius is. Jarius comes and asks to come and see my daughter. Can't forget about him. There was not an immediacy there with what's going to take place with Jairus' daughter. No, In fact, there's no resolution with Jairus' daughter at this point, but there was immediately healing with the woman. Okay, any questions or any thoughts? Yes? Mm-hmm. The commentary on the bottom of, well, it's for 534. It says, Faith has made you well. To be clear, this woman's faith was not the main cause of her healing. I don't really understand what mm-hmm. that means there. Oh, okay. yeah, it says then the next sentence, rather yeah. her face was the, was the means. means whereby healing was received. So it's not her doing a faith, and it was just her having faith then that healed her. It was her faith then in an object. That's what faith is. Faith is just not faith within itself, Our faith is faith in an object, and the object is Christ, right? So it's the faith of Christ. So it was that faith of Christ then, in Christ, that then was the means that led to the healing. Okay, So it's just not the faith itself, or faith in faith. You kind of see the difference here. It wasn't just her, but it was her faith, knowing the means that it would be Jesus that would do this. That's That's a good point, though. I'm glad you brought that up. So it's a faith in Jesus, right? And that's how we're... It's not when we talk, when we speak faith, okay? It's just not this faith that we have, just this faith and faith itself. There's always an object to our faith as Christians, and that object is Jesus, right? Jesus is the object of our faith. And then, because of that, it's about Him and what He's done for us, and then He gives to us the gifts He gives us. So, a great point on that. Okay? All right, so again, immediately she's healed. Um, but then re- recall, Jairus is still standing here. He's asked, my daughter's dying. 
I could just only picture thinking about this, the anxiety with Jairus is in, and Jesus is, is uh, doing, doing this, and here Jairus' daughter. She's immediately healed. Jairus is probably, what about my daughter? But look, he's there. Uh, he's still with them. So um, then on verse 30 here, um, and Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, um, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? This is a little strange, right? First thing you think is, wait a minute. So this power escapes Jesus. Jesus didn't know about it. Now he asks a question, who touched? But there's, there, there's more here. We know that Jesus knows what happened. I'm going to tell you a little bit. So I think to begin with, all the commentators agree. Clearly this, no, this woman was not healed without the knowledge of Jesus. Um, and again, this healing was not uh, done without Jesus's will. Um, of course, we've seen. Um, you'd have to think in these crowds that many people had touched Jesus or his garments before, and no, like magical powers just would be zapped out of him. Right? That's not what's going on here. What is you know these people that touched him before had no desire or purpose in touching him, but this woman purposely came. And touched him with their faith. And then to that faith and to that touch, Jesus responding uh, by, by you know, uh, by proving this, letting his power go out to heal her. So we cannot say that this, this was this some outgoing of power without his will. Clearly, Jesus always had control of his power. Um, and again, it's this, uh, Linsky, Dr. Linsky says the touch of the hand of the garment is kind of symbolic here. It's an aid to faith and nothing more. What's going on here? So this is why, what, what's happening. It's not that Jesus doesn't know. And then actually we can see this when he says, who touched my garment? Okay. Now reading through this, I've kind of found three different rationales, but I think they can all kind of fit together. They're not mutually exclusive. Okay. First, the LSB study note here uh, says that this is not an accusatory question, but an invitation for the woman to confess her faith. Number one. Uh, Number two, some say uh, Jesus asked this because the miracle performed upon the woman is to be revealed. Jesus wants it to be revealed. She has touched Jesus secretly. Uh, knows the miracles taking place, and then Jesus wants to bring this out of what's happened. Again, not mutually exclusive. Um, third possibility, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, this this is probably my least favorite one. But Jesus does not want her to feel that she had done anything wrong in securing her feelings. So I'm just giving you. I see Pastor laughing back there. But that that's that, that's the. Three rationale. So, in any event, I think the first two are probably the best here. She, um, you know, it was not. It's not. It's certainly not an accusatory question. Bringing it out, he wants to reveal what's taking place here. All right, um, verse thirty-one. This is interesting. Now the disciples are saying, "Okay, wait a minute." Jesus just said, "Who touched my garments?" And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? Okay, you kind of picture that, walking through a crowd, millions of people touching, and then someone touches him, he says, who touched me? So the disciples here are kind of 
bewildered at what's going on. They, they're reminding Jesus, like I said, you've got all these people around you touching you all the time, and why are you now just saying, uh, you touch me? Many people have just been inadvertently touch you. And why would Jesus say, who touched me? Again, it, it's because Jesus is insisting that someone, not that someone had touched him at, inadvertently or in, in the ordinary way or an accident. But again, someone had touched him with a purpose to be healed and there was a healing. Okay? And then Jesus, in response to that, uh, he looked around to see who had done it. Now, this is very interesting. It still kind of seems like Jesus is kind of unaware on going on, uh, going on or he doesn't know who touched him. I think everybody agrees that really Jesus knew who the woman was. Um, it could be, and he looked around to see. This is kind of an interesting take on it. One of the commentators say he, the, the word see in the Greek is in an interesting uh, tense here. So it can, you, maybe you can intimate that his eyes went uh, right to the woman when he looked around. He looked right to the woman. And again, she had not been able to slip away without anyone knowing of what had just happened. Jesus is wanting to, this to come out as what happened. Okay? So he, he knows who it is. There she is. Okay, now the woman then, in verse 33. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Um, you know, I think this is interesting. Once again, we see somebody that's really fearful in the pre- in this the presence of of God here in His saving activity. Recall when we talked about uh, Jesus calming the storms. The disciples had two kind of elements of fear. The first element was that cowardly terror that they had when the storm was there. But then at the end, recall they were also they were after Jesus calmed the the storm. Mark wrote that they were still filled with this other great fear. I think this is what's going on with the woman. It's not a cowardly terror, but it's this overpowering all that was caused by the revelation of Jesus' almighty power. Um, so in this woman's case, I think you could probably argue that given her faith um, in in and putting that into action is likely that the cause of her fear and trembling are also the result of knowing that this actually is God here, Jesus, um, it's God in the flesh. This kind of awe to this is what's taken place. Okay. Uh, verse uh, 34 here. And then Jesus said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. And this is just a great statement here. There's a number of things going on here. First of all, what does he refer to her? He refers to her as a daughter. I mean, he's addressing her now as a family member, bringing her in to the family of faith. It's his true family. So this is... Uh, further evidence of this faith has made you well or saved you. So now, here he is, daughter. He addresses her as a family member. Um, and that's the same as us, right, in our baptism. right? God places his name upon us, then we're in God's family. And then because of that, that's why we can pray to our Father and call God our Father. It's this whole bringing into God's family here. And then not only that, Jesus says, 
your faith has made you well. Although, again, I, it, it should say, your faith has saved you. In the Greek construction here, though, you could be read, your faith has saved, kind of slash healed you, and you are now saved and healed. So when you combine that then with Jesus, when he says, go in peace, go in peace, you see there's not this weak understanding of this verb, um, sozo, now that you can go in, in peace, um, this is a strong verb here, meaning you are saved. So, daughter, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And then be healed of your disease. Okay? So then, sozo here has really a wider sense than just healing. And Dr. Veltz, in his book, writes, and I totally agree with it, most people, it includes rescue from sin, death, the forces of evil, and all that is opposed to the gracious reign and rule of God. That's what's being saved here is. Okay? That's kind of the end of this break, this this interlude of this additional story. Any questions or any follow-up on the woman here? Any questions on that? No? Okay, so now we're going back to Jarius. Okay? Jairus is brought back in the story. Again, remember, Jairus is standing here throughout all this taking place. Recall that he'd come to Jesus. His daughter is dying. Tells Jesus this. Then this takes place. But Jairus is still there with him. And we see that as while, in verse 35 then, while he was still speaking, while Jesus was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house, this was Jairus, Some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Okay? Um, So, there's a delay, obviously. Delay with negative consequences. Um, Jairus should have come to Jesus sooner, right? (laughs) That's right. He should have come sooner. He waited too long. Then he came, he did the best he could, and then Jesus goes and heals woman, and then his daughter dies. There's this delay with now negative consequences. She's dead. She died. Turn in, turn in your Bible real quick, if, if you want here. Otherwise, I can read it to John 11. I'll show you that Jesus kind of works on his own time. John 11, page 1803 in your Lutheran study Bible. The death of Lazarus. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped out his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Okay? Now look at verse 6. So when Jesus had heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in that place. Two days. Kind of similar, huh? This delay that Jesus is doing with Jairus' daughter. And then I'm not going to read the whole thing, but we know Lazarus dies, right? 
Now go to verse 21, if you have your Bible, 1121. And what does Martha say? Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And then Jesus goes on, I am the resurrection and the life, whoever believes in me. Uh, one of the greatest statements, you know, verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And then, you know, that uh, we see there later here, Jesus then uh, raises Lazarus from the dead. So kind of an interesting parallel here with Jairus' daughter. But same thing happens, right? Jesus is told. Um, then he has this another thing come up, and now she's dead. Okay. G- Apparently, though, J- Jairus had been patient while Jesus dealt with this woman with the discharge of blood, but the delay caused too much time. Uh, Jesus, Jairus had gone to Jesus too late. Death outran him and won the race. Right? That's what these people are saying. That's why they ask, So why further trouble the teacher? Your daughter is dead. Don't trouble him. So this clearly reveals what these messengers thought since the child was dead, that there was nothing Jesus could do. All right, verse 36, though. But Jesus hears this. But overhearing what they said... Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. Again, Mark chooses to use this language again, the ruler of the synagogue. I think that's intentional here. He keeps saying that. But what does he tell him? Do not fear, only believe. In the Greek here, it's it's pastuo, which can be translated believe. Have faith in, trust. It's really faith. So really it's trust in me, trust in me, believe in me, have faith in me and my divine power. Um, Of course, Jesus originally had faith. That's why he came to Jesus at the beginning. And now Jesus is telling him, do not fear, only believe, only have faith, only trust in me. Verse 37 then, um, Jesus... um, And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. Interesting, Peter, James, and John are also the one, the the only disciples are with Jesus uh, at his transfiguration. And they're the only three that are with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when he's arrested. And I think I talked about this at the beginning when Jesus chose the twelve, that uh, these three are really the inner circle of the disciples. Uh, Jesus could have chosen them because of that or, don't know, maybe chosen his other witnesses to come see what's going to take place. Um, but he chooses the three of them to go with him. So they go, and then if we see in verse 38 here, um, then they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue. Again, Mark's stressing that, the ruler of the synagogue. And what does Jesus see? He saw a commotion, people wailing and wailing loudly. So this is interesting uh, when researching this. Um, uh, In this culture, first of all, we know that mourning, a a public showing of mourning 
honored the dead. Okay, So this was customary for a real public mourning. But then I, I read um, that uh, this custom, this public mourning, that it, during this time that, that there, you could actually hire paid professionals to come in and to do this. So we don't know if that was this here, but it could be paid professionals that you paid to come in to publicly mourn. Um, so, and this was actually customary of this artificial mourning. It was customary both among the Jews and had been for a long time before this and among pagan cultures during the time. So it's very interesting. So, I mean, this could be paid people coming, this big public mourning here. And then I thought about, well, if he paid them, when did he pay them? But, you know, I guess maybe he knew that she was on her deathbed, so they bring him in. I mean, we're not told that. But in any event, I thought that was interesting in this culture. So we've got these people wailing, praying, Jesus is this commotion, okay? So then in verse uh, 39, And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. Now this is interesting, sleeping. The, the, it's the Greek word here, it's kathede. It's, um, it actually is sleep. It's not It's just as you were going to take a nap, sleeping. And that's the Greek word he used. There's no special other connotation to it. He said she's sleeping. Common meaning of sleep. But as we know, as we talk about our death as Christians, this also has a deeper meaning for us. And so this is paralleling the believer's death. And in 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 9 through 10, states, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, same word, we might live with him. This sleep, this concept of sleep, that's our death. Our death before the resurrection is nothing more than sleep, regular sleep. But we will be awakened, of course, on the day of the resurrection. And that's what Jesus is doing here. Uh, that this, When Jesus said this child is not dead, but sleeping. There's intentionality to this. This is the situation of the girl. She's just asleep. She's sleeping before the, the resurrection. But instead of the final resurrection here, the daughter of Jairus, of course, is sleeping, but she's raised by, Je, uh, by Jesus who brings resurrection before the final resurrection. But she, too, will be part of the final resurrection. All right. So that's what this sleep, that's this, this concept of sleep. So in our death, it's like we're sleeping. All right. Um, verse 40 here. And what when he says this, this child is not dead, but sleeping, what is their reaction? They laugh at him. Okay, these people, the possible paid mourners or whatever, they laugh at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with them and went in where the child was. Uh, interesting uh, when the commoners say they put him put them all outside, Jesus cleaned out these peoples, these paid whatever could be paid mourners, uh, to remove the noise and remove the commotion. Okay, so he puts them all outside, um, but before they did, they they laughed at him. It can be translated, they ridiculed him. 
And recall up to this point, we've seen this before, it's, it's just continued constant resistance, resistance to Jesus at every turn here through his ministry. Okay, so they laugh at him, they ridicule him, he kicks him out. Then he takes the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in there with the child. Um, then he says to her in, fourth, in 41, he does take her by the hand and he said to her, Talitha kume, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. Um, by taking her hand, Jesus chose to take her hand to touch the girl. But again, as I talked about, he healed many without touching them, Lazarus included. So he took her hand. Uh, then he says to her this word, Talitha kumai. This is actually the original Aramaic. It's not Hebrew and it's not, um, it's not Greek. So um, Talitha kumai means arise. Um, why does Mark choose to write the Talitha Kumai here and just not translate it into the Greek or whatever? I don't know. Veltz, though, had an interest. said, this is Mark's storytelling genius. He's creating an atmosphere of a Palestinian home, of an intimate setting. I um, don't know if that's right or not, but I thought that was an interesting explanation why it's in the Aramaic. Um, also, Kumai, Talitha Kumai, Kumai, is actually related to the Hebrew word kum, which is to rise up or rise. And actually throughout the Old Testament when it's used, it has a real resurrection implication. And just one example is Isaiah 26, 19. You see this, it says, Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. Kum. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for you do for your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. Again, Hebrew word, it's arise. The Tulitha Kume is off of that, so we can kind of see there's some uh, resur- obviously resurrection language here with this young girl. And in fact, we see it even more in 42. What happens when he says this, Talitha Kumai, uh, arise, verse 42, and what happens, and immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. I want to tell you, though, the English here, and immediately the girl got up, the Greek actually, it's um, it should be translated arose, the Greek it's Anastimi is the Greek term for it. It's where we get the name um, Anastasia or Anastasia, however you say that. It's from that verb. It's, it's arise, and this all has, it's connected to uh, the final resurrection. So Jesus says to her, uh, or G, in, in what it, I should say, and immediately the girl arose and began walking. Um, so we see that together. Maiden, I say to you, arise. Jesus says, and immediately she arose and began to rock around to walk around she was only 12 years of age and then they were immediately overcome with amazement who was the it was the effect of the five in here the parents and then the three disciples peter james and john with amazement just this amazement going on they see this so when we see with the word jesus then robbed death of its prey here um, he touches, says arise, he put life where death had been. 
And clearly, I mean, the deity of Jesus is fully on display here, right? He's raising the dead. Okay, verse 43. Chris, I'm going to get it. This is the good, good ending here. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this. And he told them to give her something to eat. Just very quickly, if you have your Lutheran study Bible hand, if you turn to 1653. I'll read it, though, if you don't have it. I probably read this before, but I want to say it again, because as we see, there's some real inconsistency. Jesus will do something, and he tells everybody, don't tell anybody. And then we saw when he healed the man with the demon in the Gentile territory, he said, hey, go tell everybody. It's like, it's a little inconsistent. So anyways, the study Bible does a good point with it here. At the bottom of 1653 in the left-hand corner, you see secrecy. It's throughout the Gospel of Mark, Jesus discourages people and unclean spirits from speaking about him and his kingdom. Then at the top, um, critical scholars read this feature as a device early Christians added to the story of Jesus' life. They argue that Jesus never really called himself the Son of God. I don't even want to get into that. But in any event, it says, no, this is what's going on. This interpretation conflicts with Mark's overall goal and account, which is... Jesus exercises his authority to guide the spread of his popularity, which had brought him into conflict with political and religious authorities. But then it says, outside the jurisdiction of Jesus' main opponents, remember the Jewish areas in, in, in uh, the, where the Jewish people were, the Pharisees, scribes, everybody we've talked about, it says, outside of that jurisdiction, he actually encourages a man to proclaim his miracles. And that was in 5, 19 through 20, the man possessed uh, by the demon. So, again, I think, you know, I, I can see that. You would tell him in the Gentile, hey, go tell everybody. You know, we need to spread this here. So we've got to keep it down. It's spreading too quickly. And I've got other things to do before, you know, ultimately I'm going to be unfairly tried and sentenced and put to death. Um, Okay, a couple other things about this last sentence, and then I think um, this is interesting then. And he told them, which probably mom or dad or mom, to give her something to eat. Kind of two ways you can look at this. Uh, one, uh, does a dead body, we know, does not eat. Number two, we know that a spirit or a, some kind of ghost does not eat, right? So clearly... Human body, human, here she is. She's a real human being. She had us a body that needs to eat. She's a human being to eat. Uh, one thing. Second, Dr. Velt says it, that this is really Jesus uh, indicates this uh, reincorporation of the girl into her family. Um, kind of like how he, um, uh, it's, you know, here she is now eat. It's this reincorporation to what we, what we always do. So, uh, interesting, but I think that's you know it's obvious that uh, this was not some kind of a spirit or a ghost. She needed to eat. All right. Uh, to conclude, the study note does a pretty uh, good job here. Five twenty-one through forty-three. Jesus heals Jairus' daughter and a woman with a chronic ailment. Like Jairus, we often worry that the Lord's delay in answering our prayers may end up in catastrophe. But the eternal one who overcome death by rising from the dead never runs out of time. In fact, his gracious promise is that we shall share eternal life with him. 
Um, and that's true. So clearly these stories show in the Jesus divinity, but also talk about faith, okay, and, and being saved. And when these people came, there was the two elements. They were, there was some earthly saving going on with the, with the woman, clearly the girl, some healing that happened. She was risen. But the ultimately, that when you look at this, the Greek verb, and we see that um, throughout a lot of these stories, your faith has saved you. We see Jesus will say this a number of times uh, throughout the various Gospels. So when you hear that, think of it. It's more than just a physical earthly healing. It's being saved. Um, All right, so we've about come. Um, I don't think we can have time to get into this next section where we're going to see, again, then another really negative thing that happens to Jesus. So here was a couple positive things here, and now we get back. Uh, Jesus is rejected in his own hometown. So that being said, I think we're about at our time. Um, Thank you very much, and I'll see you next week. We'll jump into chapter 6, so moving along here. So the Lord be with you.